double, double, toil and trouble, fire burn and cauldron bubble, fillet of a fenny snake, in the cauldron boil and bake, eye of newt and toe of frog, wool of bat and tongue of dog, adder's fork and blind worm's sting, lizard's leg and howlet's wing, for a charm of powerful trouble, like a hell broth, boil and bubble. Hello, and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. I'm Devin, I have a master's in American history and indigenous studies. And I'm Sonia, and I'm doing a PhD in medieval history. The Baba Yaga Project is a podcast and blog that explores the ritualized year, folklore, and history. Today, we're doing part one of witches! Yes, this week we are looking at old world witches and specifically the witch hunts of Europe. We're going to talk about when they were, why they were, who they targeted, and why it's probably not what you think it is. Yeah, and then we're going to super complicate all of those narratives when it hops over to the new world and gets mixed up with... um, indigenous people's witch beliefs and enslaved African witch beliefs, so the witch beliefs from Western Africa and how that all sort of comes together in a totally new concept. But we're going to do that in another another episode because this is a whole lot of info about witches going out for you guys. Exactly. Sonia's going to take it away this, this, this episode. And in a few weeks, you're going to hear Devin's side of... The Atlantic, because in the interim, we're going to be talking about Halloween and some other spooky fun spook. stuff. It's spooky season! Spooky! So why don't we start off with the major things that I think people probably think about, which is, but might not actually be true. Sonia? Sounds good. So this is a uh, welcome to me busting a bunch of myths. Number pew, one, pew pew shooting down the myths. Pew pew. Exactly. Pew, pew. We're gonna we're gonna take all these myths and burn them at the stake, Devin. <laughs> the, so these myths turned me into a newt. <laughs> I got better. It's fine. <laughs> we can build a bridge out of them now. <laughs> so number okay. one, the witch hunts were they in the Middle Ages, the medieval period? No. Uh, The medieval period in Europe is from roughly 500 to about 1500, depending on who you talk to. This kind of, you know, plus or minus a few decades. But the witch hunts actually were from 1450 to 1750. So they were at the very, they started at the very, very end of the Middle Ages. You see some witch trials, but they really peak in the 1500s and 1600s. Um, so that's, you know, what people call the Renaissance or the early modern period. So this is not, um, you know, uh, we're in the dark ages burning witches. This is like, you know, think while the Renaissance is going on and Shakespeare is writing, people are burning witches. Yeah. Secondly, Uh, there's a lot of myths that this is all done by, like, the priests and the Catholic Church. And to an extent, some of that's true. There definitely were 
some Catholic witch burnings, but the vast majority were actually in Protestant countries, and this is the important part, they were done in the secular courts. It wasn't done, for the most part, in in a religious or ecclesiastical context. So that's important. The third kind of myth is that it's just this all being carried out by a bunch of uneducated, dumb, hick peasants with torches and pitchforks forming an angry mob. And to be fair, sometimes it was. But again, the vast majority of these were taking place in, like, courts. They were being spearheaded by, you know, the wealthy and the educated. So this isn't a bunch of, you know... This is coming from the top down in most cases. And now here's kind of the controversial, I guess, belief is we have this idea that everyone at this time must have just been delusional or they must just have been stupid. Um, And, you know, they believed in witches, so they must not have been very Mm -hmm. smart and they were, you know, not just all being illogical. And there's even been arguments that everyone must be, you know, on drugs, or they must all be schizophrenic, or they must be, you know, in some other way, some kind of large scale mental illness. And mm-hmm. obviously, a mental illness existed in the past. But you also can't really retroactively diagnose people based on like, the handful of documents that survive about any one given person. And I think we have to kind of put ourselves into the mindset of people in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, which is witchcraft is real. Like the people believed in witches. And for the most part, the people being accused also thought of themselves as witches. Um, (laughs) This isn't some elaborate fantasy world. This is something that was practiced at the time very widely. Yeah, there's um, a text. If you, if any of our listeners really want to delve into how historians talk and write about witchcraft and witch belief, um, the introduction to a text as a super boring name, but it's an excellent book and really easily easy to find. Um, especially if you have access to a university library, but it's also just sort of around the introduction to the text called Male Witches in Early Modern Europe Mm -hmm. um, goes through a whole... The introduction is all about how to talk about witch belief because they go through talking about how their students write a lot about well this guy thought he was was saying that he was a witch to get out of being tortured which like was possibly part of the truth but also like it's not you shouldn't be writing they thought they were a witch or they thought this person was a witch like they for the practical purposes of that time they were witches and they were doing magic like, regardless of how efficacious the actual magic was, like, that's what they were doing, and that's what it was understood to be. And, like, so for the science of the time, like, that was the best scientific explanation. Like, it was witchcraft. So, like, when we talk about it, we can't take it out of that historical context where it's actually witchcraft. Exactly. So, And we do know that 
there clearly were individuals who were practicing magic and who were, you know, doing charms, rituals, who claimed that they sold their soul to the devil. I mean, again, you can't... Going at this and saying, well, they were clearly delusional and stupid doesn't help. And it's not very productive to a conversation because if you believe that you sold your soul to the devil and everyone in your, you know, society also believes that you sold your soul to the devil, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you did. You sold your soul to the devil. Yeah, it's it's not... <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter where you stand now. You know, you can look at it and say, well, they were all delusional. It's like, well, but that's something that was in the collective psyche and something that people were mm -hmm. believing in. And I mean, we have plenty of things like that to this day that we do. I mean... Yeah. You know, there's lots of things that we believe now that aren't, you know, 100% rational and based on science. So we are going to go... I'm a Scorpio. Yeah, and I'm an Aquarius. <laughs> I don't know how we get along. Me neither. It's baffling, honestly. It truly is. I think it's probably because I have a Libra moon and Libra rising, oh. so a lot of my personality is Libra. It makes <laughs> sense. And I have a Gemini moon and a Cancer rising, so, you know, that kind of oh, okay. smooths out the Aquarius in me. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's talk about numbers and get into a okay. little bit of math. So... <laughs> If we're looking at the extent of the witch hunt, overall, the best estimates we have are that roughly 90,000 people were prosecuted for witchcraft in Europe between 1450 and 1750. About half of these people lived in German lands within the Holy Roman Empire. Um, about 10,000 were from Switzerland. France really only... Um, accounts for about 1,100 of the cases. There were about 1,500 prosecutions in um, the British Isles outside of Scotland, and another 1,500 just in Scotland alone. About 3,000 in the Scandinavian kingdoms, and throughout Bohemia, Hungary, Transylvania, Russia, and Poland, there seems to be a about 3,000 total. So for the most part, these trials are taking place in, you know, Germanic, German lands, Scandinavian kingdoms, Scotland, Switzerland, but they are happening throughout all of Europe to a lesser degree. And yeah, that really tracks with the Protestant yeah. Reformation. Those are the countries that became majority Protestant. Yeah, there's a big correlation between Protestantism and witch hunts, and we're going to talk more about that shortly. But of the 90,000 prosecutions, there were about, about there's about a 50% execution rate. So about 45,000 people died um, in terms of at least records that we have. That mm -hmm. is, you know, kind of on the conservative estimate, 45,000. There's likely more people who were executed, um, but they might have been executed in more informal circumstances and good records weren't kept, you know. Again, talking about those instances where there were kind of a angry mob coming and killing you kind of thing. 
But overall, all of these witchcraft prosecutions are one very large operation that took place in Europe and that took place in the early modern period. So that's kind of the scope of what we're looking at today. There were a whole bunch of reasons leading up to it, but before we dive into why people got so obsessed with witches in that 300-year span, let's talk about what do you know of witches? What exactly is a witch? So, basically in all witch-believing societies, witches are regarded at their most basic level as individuals who have some kind of mysterious power to perform specifically evil deeds in most cases. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at this period that we're looking at, is there differences between witches, wizards, sorcerers, like philosopher? Are all of those things really meaning different things? You know, in the way that we talk about like Merlin versus a witch that gets burned to the stake. <laughs> Yes, there's definitely a difference between, basically it comes down to a question of where you're deriving power from in this situation Mm -hmm. and how you're using that power. So they would call it um, maleficent magic, or Mm -hmm. also known as black magic, which has no, when we're talking about black witches and white witches, this, this is in a, this is before like racial categories are a thing. They mean literally the colors black and white when they're talking about (laughs) the magic, not skin tone, because they are, you know, they're burning black witches in Scotland, which, like, people in Scotland are, by and large, very, very fair. Yeah. So, anyway, (laughs) just wanted to point that out, that black magic does not refer to any racial category, and (laughs) to be clear on that. So basically, most of the time the word witch would have negative connotations in a way that, say, philosopher wouldn't or a magister wouldn't. Because the witch is seen as someone who's performing these occult supernatural things that are harmful. So that might be killing someone by, you know, sticking pins in a doll or using a spell to cause sickness, bringing about bad weather. There's a lot of a lot of um, trials happen after a crop gets ruined by hail or by excessive rain. If there was arson, if like a place burned down, you might be it, it might be um, put onto witchcraft or even causing impotence in men could be blamed on a witch. <laughs> <laughs> So that's kind of the what what we're looking at when we're talking about witches in this episode. It's someone who's doing these, who has access to some kind of secret knowledge and power that's allowing them to do evil things to their neighbors. But before we dive in, we're going to talk about magic in the Middle Ages to give us a bit of an idea of what exactly was going on before all this happens. Yeah. Okay, that sounds good. So what it, what is what does magic itself mean? Yeah, so magic at this point is really about sort of secret knowledge or knowledge that's kind of outside of what the ordinary person knows. And you have this idea that 
really comes up in the Middle Ages that you can have evil magic or demonic magic, which is when typically you're doing bad things through the help of demons or through the help of the devil. But you also have this idea of natural magic, which is like making up, you know, using herbs and different parts of animals or different minerals to kind of create these spells to create charms, amulets, and that's all fine because that is, it's seen as, okay, the world is God's creation. God gave certain qualities or certain traits to these natural materials. And if you know how to use these materials in such a way to make magical effects happen, whether that's, you know, curing an illness or you know, helping someone through childbirth or healing someone, then that's fine. But if you're using this knowledge for evil, it can get kind of dicey. And and to be clear, I mean, in the Middle Ages, the, the Catholic Church kind of went back and forth <laughs> on the stance of magic. I mean, yeah. especially in the early medieval period, they were really, really... you know kind of anxious about all the paganism going on and you know but at the same time they're like well but we have all these ancient philosophers from greece and rome and that we really really respect and they're talking about using you know different minerals and herbs and such Mm -hmm. to create these spells so you know it it must be fine right like it's not it's not that bad and you know, you have all these sermons, like, it's just bangs on about, like, can everybody just stop going to witches? If you're sick, please stop going to the white witch. Please stop going to the natural witches. Just, like, come to the church and pray for a bit. But it's one of those, like, okay, you keep harping on about this. It seems like most people, they're just, they're going to the witches. Yeah, they're still going (laughs) to these, like, witches, which, again, like, when we're talking about the Middle Ages, it's not necessarily bad. Mm-hmm. And there's also a big separation in the Middle Ages that happens between what's seen as like high magic, which is done by the educated, versus low magic. So high magic is like an alchemist because you know you're working mm. with you're you're working with science and scientific symbols, <laughs> and you know you're going to take these metals and through through inquiry into the into the uh, magical arts, you're going to be able to turn them into gold. Or divination was usually high magic because you had some kind of ways of acquiring secret knowledge, whether that was astrology, because again, you had to be educated to understand, you know, the movement of the stars and the planets and what that would mean. There was also, you know, there were ideas about necromancy, which was frowned upon but again it still falls into high magic because again you're probably using some secret knowledge to do it and these are things that can easily fall into the category of being a learned man who understands how god has set up the universe yes like with astrology and things like well like i just can i have studied and seen how god has set up set up the planet and by understanding his messages in the stars like how the science of the stars works yeah exactly it's using the power of god exactly versus like low magic was the sort of thing that would be 
um, kind of learned through oral tradition or maybe an apprenticeship mm -hmm. with, you know, the village midwife or the village, you know, they'd be called wise women or cunning women. So these were usually yeah. simple charms, spells, how to make a protective amulet, how to, you know, maybe make someone fall in love with you, how to, um, you know, oh, heal oh, oh. the sick, how to <laughs> protect yourself from the fairies, that sort of mm -hmm. thing. So overall, in the Middle Ages, the, the church gets a little antsy about magic, but they're usually kind of pretty chill about it. They're not, it's not their main concern by any means. Um, it's also a lot of the time monks and nuns who are writing all this stuff down. Like Hildegard of yeah. Bingen. I mean, she's famous abbess. I talk about her all the time. We stan. Yeah. I mean, she <laughs> writes down so many recipes for like quasi-magical remedies for sicknesses where it's like, well, you have to crush yeah. this up in a certain way at a certain time and say this prayer and then that'll cure yeah. someone. And it's also really interesting because during the Middle Ages, you have these, um, you have books called confessionals. So it's like um, mm -hmm. kind of a guide on, you know, if you're a priest and someone comes to you for confession and they say they did X, then what should their penance be or what should you say to them, right? So it's like, okay, well, if someone comes to me and says that they... I don't know, stole their neighbor's bushel of apples or whatever, like tell them that they have to say 10 Hail Mary prayers and, and repent, right? And you actually have, have in some of these, um, it'll say if, if Pete, if someone comes to you and says, you know, I think I'm a witch, I've been flying at night, and I've been going out at night and flying around and, and casting spells, the response in there is actually to tell them that's not real. That's not possible. You're having bad dreams. Don't worry about it. <laughs> oh, wow. So it's, uh, it's again, like occasionally it does crop up as this like, oh, like magic is maybe usurping the power of God. But like overall, they're like, eh, don't worry about it too much. Like we have, we have other things to worry about, man. Like we've yeah. got, we, we've got the plague, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> We've got the plague. We're trying to like clear some forests. We we don't have time to worry about some old woman like crushing up herbs. It's fine. <laughs> but you do even at this point start seeing some ideas that magicians and witches are kind of uh, especially in the late middle ages. There there is this development where they start saying like, "Hmm, well, maybe these people are actually communing with the devil. So, you know, 1400s, like I said, we start witch hunting in the 1450s. We start seeing this development of people writing, and these are learned, elite people writing about how there's this, this danger because there are magicians out there who are making face-to-face -face deals with the devil. And that must be how they're getting their power. And they are becoming heretics and apostates. Spooky. It's very spooky. So it's this very, <laughs> you know, you start getting these, these ideas cropping up and saying, you know, oh, well, there's, there must be this demonic influence. There must be this diabolical part. And this, you know, kind of 
we, we start to see some people actually get prosecuted for this in the 1450s and they get into trouble because they're suspected of worshipping the devil or having sex with the devil even. But it really doesn't get spicy until we hit early modern Europe. Spill that tea. All right. So, Spill that witch tea. So we've got... <laughs> tip the cauldron. So, <laughs> tip that cauldron. <laughs> I'm going to scoop up some witch's brew. <laughs> so basically, living through the years like 1500 to like 17, early 1700s were really rough. It was really bad. It was just unrelenting garbage for a few hundred years. There is no nice way to say this. For the vast majority of people, things were terrible. There was unprecedented inflation, a huge decline in the standard of living because of the growth of capitalism, which threw people off of their lands and made them become homeless. There was the emergence of... reference, see our podcast on private property and the enclosure movement. Yeah, TLDR, (laughs) a bunch of rich landowners said, uh, I'm going to put up literal fences and hedges around all the land that used to be common, and I'm going to kick all these peasants out of their houses and make them homeless, and then I'm going to hire, like, two shepherds to herd my sheep, and then everyone got mad and said, why are there so many homeless people? We should hate them. So anyway... Clearly they're... Clearly it's their fault. ...broken in some way and have failed to be functional humans. And another fun fact is we see the emergence of the modern state, we need to put down a bunch of rebellions that crop up and civil wars. There's international conflict on an unprecedented scale and also a complete destruction of what was, you know, at least a mostly unified medieval Christianity. So all of this in the span of like 200 years takes a really big psychic toll. Like this is a population that very firmly believes that there is a fixed order, that everything has its place. The medieval imagination was obsessed with order and hierarchy and having everything fit very neatly into this, you know, kind of cosmology where Mm -hmm. there's a place for everything, everything has its place, the world is as it should be, and we must maintain this order. And suddenly they see this order just crumbling around them. And... This basically creates this really, like, age of melancholy or age of anxiety, it's called, where there's this kind of overwhelming gloom and pessimism and, you know, just people feeling very scared. Right? It's totally nothing like what we're living through now. I have no idea what you're talking about. I've never seen a gloomy time. Right? I... Ever. Can I just say, I... I can relate more to these, like, 16th century peasants than to, like, (laughs) my parents' generation. Yeah. I'm like, wow, unprecedented inflation, a decline in the standard of living. (laughs) What? (laughs) Amazing. Can't relate. I love watching movies from, like, the late 80s, early 90s, where it's, like, a bunch of Gen Xers whining about how, like, they don't know what to do with themselves. (laughs) I'm like, you don't know what problems are. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) 
come back to me when you lost your crappy job that you got because there are no jobs because of a pandemic and now you're trying to find a new job and there's even fewer jobs there's just nothing there's nothing to do and everything is awful you know what come back then gen x yeah i mean not to hate on any of our gen x listeners but honestly you have a lot of explaining to do yes we're gonna burn you all as witches because clearly you put a hex on things i don't know i think i think we're giving we're letting the boomers off too easily though oh no and the silent generation you know all of them all All of them them. anyone older than a millennial i don't know i don't know what to tell you yeah sorry fam gotta go to the stake (laughs) you know what i think we need devin we need a reformation in our time. We need to change everything. So let's start with how we get witches. And witch burning and the witch hunts. The reformation hunts. was not a fun time either. Yeah, the reformation <laughs> is happening and uh, it was not good. So the age of the reformation spans from, you know, 1517 when Martin Luther goes and puts his 99 theses on the door of Wittenberg Church and says Catholicism. Devin, I'm a Catholic. I'm doing my best. (laughs) I know. I'm allowed to say that the Reformation is bad. That's true. I'm I'm a Byzantine Catholic from Eastern Europe, that's, so like that's we're okay like when I say it, we're like, what is going on over there? Like, what are they up to? And there's just like continual screaming from Western Europe for like a few hundred years, and we're like, no thanks, hard pass. We're gonna stick with like, our current plan, which is you can be Eastern Catholic or you can be Eastern Orthodox, and that's it. Those are your options. And Maybe like, Jewish, but you have to be born into it. Yeah, and everyone's gonna hate you for it. Yeah. I'm, like, super Protestant, too, because I'm a Quaker. It's true. And That's it's, like, true. the Reformation happened, and then everybody threw a fit, and but then fun Quakers fact, were like, it still sucks. Yeah. I was gonna say, other Protestants also hated the Quakers, so, like, yeah, they, killed they did not like you. They killed a ton of Quakers. Yep. There were so many hangings, they burned a bunch of them at the stake in England, that was yep. real, because uh, Quakers were also supposed to be witches. Anyway. Yeah, because they it. didn't, like needless authority and thought that like women should have rights and children women yeah and that's children true and children yeah to be body. clear when i'm talking about like protestantism <laughs> with a big the protestant reformation big p big r we're talking like martin luther calvin zwingli like the yeah. the the main people who who just had to had to go and be shit disturbers, my dudes. <laughs> Elizabeth the first. Oh, Elizabeth. <laughs> God damn it. Anyway, we can't get we yeah, can't so go. Back- to, this isn't just me dunking on Protestants for an hour, Devin. I can't do it. <laughs> we would lose so many followers. <laughs> we would. Actually, should we just cut this and start again? I feel bad. <laughs> Being mean. <laughs> All right. Anyway. So, here is my, here's my 95 theses, Devin. About witches. Yeah. All right. So, anyway, Age of Reformation's happening. Starts in 1517. It goes straight through till 1650. For anyone who's unfamiliar, it's basically the time Martin Luther said, Hey, Catholic Church, you're maybe kind of 
doing a bunch of crappy stuff. And the Catholic Church said, F off. And corrupt. Yeah, which like fair. Fair. I will, you know, we'll take that L. (laughs) But then, you know, things kind of went off the rails a bit, and it went from perhaps we could improve the church somewhat to we're going to completely break away from the church and then Martin Luther just frustrates me because he's like, clearly, if everyone reads the Bible for themselves, they'll all come to the same conclusion that I did. And then we'll all just have this new, perfect, pure church. And literally, all the other theologians he knew, all the other like learned men he was talking to were like, Marty, please stop. That's not what's going to happen. It's going to be chaos. That's not what happened, guys. That's not what happened. happened. Because then, guess what? (laughs) A bunch of people read the Bible for themselves and were like, hey, Luther, you're an idiot. I'm going to start my own splinter group. And now, you know, then it leads to all this infighting. You've got the wars of religion. Yeah, the Quakers, the Shakers, the Anabaptists, the Calvinists, the... The Shakers just didn't really have a long-term plan for themselves. They just they just really liked dancing, Devin. Just let them dance and and make be celibate. Yeah. They make nice cabinets. Leave them alone. <laughs> well, I mean, actually we can make fun of the shakers. There's no shakers listening There's to no this shakers podcast. <laughs> I'm they gonna restart have, it, they Devin. Wouldn't have sex, so then there wasn't any more of them. <laughs> Alright, but anyway, so you know, it's it's all chill, but the Protestant Reformation at this point, they are real big on Satan. Like, straight up, Martin Luther claims to have had active physical fights with Satan. So that's a thing. And he said, quote, We are all subject to the devil, both in body and goods. And we be strangers in this world, where if he is the prince and God. And the devil, according to Luther, liveth and reigneth throughout the whole world. So this was new. This was a new idea, you know. (laughs) That's what I'm saying. Catholic Church was always like, you know, the devil is basically like the, I don't know, the antithesis of Jesus, right? Like, you know, the devil is trying to, you know, is basically representative of like hate and anger, whereas Jesus is about like love and goodwill towards your fellow man. Whereas the Reformation, especially Luther's writings about it, really turn it into Satan is the lord of the mortal plane, and we are all subject to him at all times. He is actively trying to steal your soul away from you. So people start getting real spooked, because that's a scary thought. And it's spooky season. It is exactly, it's spooky season. So we take this late medieval idea of witches are people who make pacts with the devil and then add the Protestant Reformation where Luther's like, the devil's out to get you at all times, watch your back. And you get this great conglomerated idea of witches are people who are practicing harmful magic and also diabolical because, you know, they they are making pacts with the devil and getting all kinds of favors from him they're having sex with the devil they have his demons as their you know at their beck and call they do all kinds of obscene blasphemous rites where they sacrifice and eat children and they you know dance around naked in the forest and again this is all stuff that's being i mean the (laughs) dancing naked 
fine. Not, I'm not down with the Ooh, eating babies party. thing. <laughs> think, think yeah, we got to draw a line somewhere. Oh, Devin. <laughs> oh, Devin. Can I? Can I? Eat a baby. Anyway, for them to like, you know, get some muscle built up first. <laughs> it's just Hansel and Gretel. It's just Devin in the woods luring children in. We got to cannibalism real quick. <laughs> but anyway, so we've got this going on, and remember, this is all stuff that's being written by and for the educated elite. This is for people who can read. For the most part, peasants were like thought that there were like witches um but it wasn't this like detailed cosmology of a witch so much as like there are scary women who can put a curse on me so this is really all top-down stuff where you get educated elites writing about this and then you know reading out these sentences in the Mm -hmm. town square that really drives this like oh Witches are actually devil worshippers who eat babies and dance naked in the woods and use their power to destroy our crops and kill us and make us impotent. So it's it's very much an elite <laughs> idea that gets driven home by this. The government's always been overly focused on erectile dysfunction, haven't they? Oh, they really have. It's a real concern. <laughs> there is nothing more pressing, Devin. <laughs> anyway, this is also the time where you start seeing the demonization even of like natural magic and like good mm-hmm. magic. Because their way of viewing it goes from, oh, that's fine, you're just using natural properties, to oh, but you know how to cure the sick with these herbs, which means you must also know how to make people sick with these herbs, which means that you're a witch and you had sex with the devil and you made a pact and now we have to kill you before you make us all impotent. (laughs) It's a real, there's a lot of sexual tension in this. (laughs) That's kind of gross. Yeah, yeah. And also... The rise of the Protestant Reformation at this point also really shifts how people think about religiosity in general, because uh, both Catholics and Protestants, because the Catholics also have like a kind of Catholic counter-reformation. And in both cases, there's this new emphasis on the individual. It's about Mm -hmm. you and your belief and your salvation and your personal faith, your personal beliefs and Mm -hmm. you know as compared to you look at medieval traditional catholicism it's much more community based it's about you have to do certain good deeds you have to give Mm -hmm. to the poor feed the hungry etc whereas here this becomes much more about personal piety and having this personal pursuit yeah which means, which for a lot of people is really, really scary. And you have these feelings of guilt and unworthiness and feeling bad all the time. Because again, you go from like medieval Catholicism where you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven. You know, I do. I go to church. I, I, yeah, I haven't killed anybody. I go to confession, I do the acts of mercy I'm supposed to do. It's all chill. I have reasonable stance to believe that I'm going to have a nice afterlife. 
Whereas Protestant Reformation's like, no, at any <laughs> moment you could lose your salvation and go directly to hell. And then Calvinism makes it even scarier because they say, well, some people are just predestined to go to hell and you don't know who it is. Yeah. It could be you. It could be your whole family. It's probably you. And the only way you can tell that you're not going to hell is if you're always being a good person all the time and never, ever, ever doubt in the good Lord Jesus Christ. If you do, one-way ticket yeah, to hell. Yeah, but you also can't be sure of your own salvation because yes. if you're too sure, then that is a is sign. deception. Well, it's a, it's a sign that you don't have appropriate humility. Yep. And that you think that you know as much as God, which yep. is like a horrible sign of blasphemy, which clearly means that you're just going to hell. So if you're sure that you're being a good person all the time and that you should be going to heaven, then you're probably going to hell. Yep. <laughs> and there's yep. nothing you can do about it. Nope. But so you have to only be sure in the almighty power of God in Jesus and also just be like, Meh. I'm probably evil. Gonna just try and not be evil. Also, my children are probably evil. So there was no, like, concept of, like, I'm going to meet my family again in heaven, which is part of why, like, losing children for Puritans was really, really hard because it's like, that kid's probably just gone forever. Yep. Yep. This becomes so anyway, a big thing in the New World when the Puritans yeah. get over there. <laughs> yeah, they they ha the Puritans are a whole other a whole other level, but you basically end up with these people who are super anxious about individual <laughs> purity yeah. and piety, and this creates a situation where it's very easy to find scapegoats because you go from the medieval concept of like, oh, there's a famine or the plague, we must all do communal penance and, you know, maybe give to the poor and pray some more. And instead, this turns into, there must be an evildoer among us. We must seek them out and destroy them so that our crops stop failing. Becky's got that funny eye, but it was her. I hate Becky. Yup. <laughs> oh, Becky. Oh, Becky, Becky. <laughs> there was also this, like, added tension because... You get this, like, on in both Catholic and Protestant situations, this idea of having to purify the faith by getting rid of any superstitions, or what they started to deem superstitions. So anything that was even remotely not 100% out of the Bible was supposed to be stamped out. So this was any kind of blessings exorcisms, anything modeled on liturgical practice, holy water charms, amulets, any kind of, you know, divination, any kind of healing rituals, any kind of love magics, any incantations, recitations of prayers, like saints. all of these. Yeah, images saints, of saints, images of images saints, of Christ, images yep. of anything, because that's an idol. Yep. Yep. Same with the saints. That's idolatry as well, because you would pray to ask the saint to pray to God for you. And uh, you're not supposed to pray to the saints. Exactly. And it becomes this big issue because then it turns into, it goes from, well, this is, you know, this is something you're not supposed to do to, oh, well, she has candles and herbs and I heard her 
saying the same prayer six times in a row. So she must be a witch. She must be practicing magic. And again, to a lesser extent, you see some things in um, in Catholic countries as well, where, you know, through the Middle Ages, I mean, they really didn't care what the peasants were doing. <laughs> I mean, not not completely, but, you know, like, for the most part, they were like, I don't know, if you want to put up a maypole and dance around it, like, we're not going to stop you. But then, you know, with the Protestant, ca- the Catholic Counter-Reformation, they're like, Oh, we got to get rid of anything that isn't like 100% pure Catholic. Like, we got to make sure that no one's doing anything shady. So, in both cases, you have this real crackdown on anything that's like folk belief or folklore. And, you know, the kind of coming paranoia that comes with that because you have people who normally would have been like, well, I think Becky's a witch, so I'm going to make sure that I hang my rosary at the door and, you know, put some salt around the house to make sure she can't get us. And now they're suddenly not allowed to do that. They're like, oh, no, I'm very scared of Becky now because I don't have my protective salt circle. (laughs) Damn you, Becky. Right? And kind of the last linchpin of this religious change is this really big emphasis on only the Bible as the source of all religious truth and really all truth in general. And this insistence that every single thing in it has to be taken super literally. So when they're translating it, they translate Exodus 22.18 as thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Now in the original Hebrew, it translates as um, someone who poisons someone else or someone who works in darkness. So it's kind of unclear what exactly that's referring to. I don't know a whole lot about that, but it's definitely not about a like, old woman who lives in the woods and makes a pact with the devil and has sex with him. But what matters was it was translated as witch and people already in Europe, had a preconceived idea of what does a witch mean. And this gave them, you know, basically free reign to say, we are ordered to kill all the witches. Step two is uh, capitalism and the work ethic and class differentiations that come with it. What, what? So we're basically, back, back on our usual. We're back shit. on our bullshit, Devin. <laughs> Let's just get right to it. Before, <laughs> what happened in history? Capitalism ruined it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically, you look at the 15th century, even the early 16th century. Poverty is not a major social problem. It's mostly like you know. Ah, my house burnt down and I lost everything. But then, like, you know, for the most part, the other people in your village would be like, well, we can't just let, I don't know, Ben and Martha starve to death and be in the cold, so we'll help them build a new house. So basically, you know, poverty was not permanent. And it was not, it was definitely not the inevitable, um, like, it wasn't just, like, an inevitable state you were going to live in. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not like medieval peasants were living in castles, but, like, you knew you were going to have a home. Like, homelessness was not a big concern, and the only way yeah. that you weren't going to have food was, like, a no widespread... Yeah, like, nobody has food because of widespread 
crop failure. Mm-hmm. However, again, uh, we get into the 1500s and a bunch of rich people say, you can't live on our land anymore. Kick off a bunch of poor people. They become vagrants. They go to cities or they live at the very, very margins of society by hiring out their labor and working for wages on wealthier people's farms and estates. So you're in this situation where suddenly you no longer have this stable home or stable source of food, and you are fully dependent on basically your your wages. And this mm-hmm. creates a widespread horrible crushing poverty but it also in particular really really harms the situation of women women in the middle ages and even into the 16th you know into the early 16th century even yes there was an ideal there was this kind of expectation that husbands were supposed to be the head of the household and Mm -hmm. their wives were supposed to be submissive to them but in reality at this time period it's often not really playing out like that mm-hmm. in private you know the wives in this situation were that were running the household and it was a much more economic um partnership because if you're a woman and you have your home you're probably spinning cloth or brewing beer for a local manufacturer you might be working in washing or keeping an alehouse or doing other um work that's bringing in cash for your family. So for the most part, you have this economic equality with your husband that in in the end, you know, you can see this in records that, you know, yes, there's this idea that you're supposed to be submissive, but there's also this counter idea of like, but, you know, you as the husband should like take her into consideration and like, you know, happy wife, happy life kind of deal. Because, like, you know, the the reality was you couldn't just, like, rule your house with an iron fist because your wife was probably the one who had, like, cash in hand. Mm-hmm. If you're a man, you're working in the fields or you're working at a trade where you're getting, you know, you're getting paid sometimes. She's the one who's, you know, maybe selling eggs at the market or cloth or whatever and has cash at any given time. However, as working outside the home and not having a home became more and more the norm in a lot of these cases and working for wages, women become less and less equal in the economic partnership. Men get paid much higher wages at this point, so women become more and more dependent on their husbands and more and more subordinated to them Mm -hmm. during the 1500s, 1600s. And there's also, at this point fewer options outside of marriage and childbirth. There's no longer convents for you to join. You don't really have the ability to just live in your own cottage because you've been kicked off. Um, There used to be hospitals, and again, convents and hospitals are many times, you know, gotten rid of in the Reformation because they're Catholic institutions. So you suddenly have these women who went from having at least some options to be self-sufficient or at least to have something resembling an equal partnership in a marriage. I mean, not quite equal, but like, you know, having some autonomy to suddenly being 
a very, very subordinated person. And if you weren't married, it made it even more dangerous for you. Uh, Most witches actually were single women. And there was this big scare at this point in the 1500s, 1600s about all these unmarried women. Because, again, you used to have convents and hospitals that unmarried women could go live in. And hospitals at that point were like hospices. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it was mostly like a um, proto-hospice care and... Palliative um, care. Yeah, palliative care and also kind, kind of a nursing home. Yeah. All combined. But suddenly you have a lot of unmarried women because they can't go to those places and you have a much higher rate of death for men than for women, mostly because of all the wars that are going on. So you suddenly go from having maybe like a 5% of women who never married in the Middle Ages to like 10%, sometimes even 20% of women, depending on region, in the 17th century. And this was a real source of anxiety for people because it was seen as outside the natural order that, you know, these women should have some kind of male person in their life who is, you know, responsible for them. And women were also subjected to a lot of suspicion because even in this, like, quasi like agrarian capitalism society they were still overwhelmingly the people who were doing the cooking the healing and the midwifery which were all cases where you were kind of vulnerable to magic right that she could put a curse on you or a curse on your baby Mm -hmm. so this is often like well the baby died in delivery she must be a witch or her husband died she must have been poisoning his food So basically you have a lot of women who are in very precarious positions, both within marriage and also even more so when they're not married, Mm -hmm. and who are in a lot of cases very, very poor. They were often really on that margin of subsistence and were either begging to survive or were, you know, maybe gathering field, you know, the scraps in the fields kind of thing. But there's also this big issue around fertility, because before all of this big social upheaval and change, Mm -hmm. it wasn't uncommon for women to basically perform, like, chemical abortions, essentially. There were, you know, it it was pretty widely known you had, you know, which types of herbs and which types of, you know, Um, recipes you could kind of cook up in order to, they called it, restore the the menstrual cycle. Um, And it wasn't seen as murder. It wasn't seen as bad. Um, For the most part, it was just seen as, you know, I don't know, pretty normal part of life, Um, especially for women who, you know, if you're naturally getting pregnant every, you know, every other year or every year, I mean, you know, it, it was mostly just seen as a way to 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 have children, but also make sure that you didn't wear yourself out through having mm-hmm. too many ch- children or die and then leave yeah. leave your children behind. Yeah. But now we have this 
this society that more and more doesn't really have a place for women outside of childbearing. They're not needed anymore, at least they're seen as not being useful in this mm -hmm. new capitalist society outside of their ability to produce the next generation of laborers. And you can start seeing the kind of really rampant misogyny that comes up around this. I mean, the classic example is Martin Luther's writing saying that, you know, it like, basically, if a woman dies in childbirth, it's no big deal. She should just have as many kids as she can. And if she dies, she dies. Like, that's really the mentality here, because it was at this point by the 1500s coming to be seen as a woman's only valid purpose as being a wife and a mother. And there's this real rage and suspicion towards older women or women who, you know, can no longer have children mm -hmm. because at that point they're basically seen as disposable. So it becomes this very, you know, she must be doing something bad. She must be, you know, suspicious in some way. Why is she, you know, not, you know, why, why isn't she fulfilling her proper role? Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's very grim. Like, it's really, really brutal. And that's just, you know, kind of the reality at that point is that, you know, this is really where we're seeing a lot of the you know, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that there was no no misogyny in the Middle Ages or in antiquity. That's <laughs> no, clearly yeah. wrong. But, I mean, there's no denying that in the, like, 16th and 17th centuries, we see a rollback of rights for women in terms mm -hmm. of their ability to act autonomously economically and socially, their rights to inherit property, their rights to act as individuals. And a big part of this is, you know, this constriction of saying you have one valid purpose, you have one reason to be alive, and that is making babies, and that's it. Eek. So, love that. <laughs> There's also a lot of sexual anxiety, um, because, and this is, this is a great quote from John Bossie's, there, John Vossi's uh, The Witch Hunt in Early Modern Europe, excellent book, we'll link it in the website, but, quote, there was much more to be feared from the sexually experienced mature woman whose passion had not subsided, especially if she was no longer married and no longer able to conceive a child. And there's this real anxiety around, like, well, these old hags must be going into the woods, and they must be getting seduced by demons, because, <laughs> you know, they're just so, so amorous, and so, you know, sexually frustrated. Oh and there, there's this real anxiety around it. So that also plays into this idea of, she's a witch, we have to, we have to get her. And then, of course... Our favorite part of the early modern period is the creation of the state and the need to maintain order. And now, the creation of the state and the establishment of a new world order. Cut that part out. It's not actually a new world order. Well, it was for them. <laughs> so, to give us an example of the anxieties surrounding witches and the state, 
We have in 1602, the demonologist Henry Boget estimated that there were a total of 1,800,000 witches in Europe. <laughs> According to him, there were, quote, witches by the thousands everywhere, multiplying upon the earth, even as worms in a garden. What? How did he calculate this? He basically... I, I forget all of his uh, calculations, but it was, I think, based on, like, the number of trials that people had been having versus, like, him saying, well, if we've prosecuted X number of witches, then that means that there must be, you know, 10 unprosecuted witches for every one witch that we've caught. And it's this real terror, like, this real threat that people are panicked about because again this is you know he's writing for an elite audience Mm -hmm. he's not a peasant writing this this is a learned man talking about how there's over a million witches in europe and we have to be on guard at all times yeah sometimes learned men are the worst i know (laughs) we must stop them we need you know we just we need more himbos it's the problem. Yeah. Whew. Love me a himbo. <laughs> <laughs> I say so this now, with my fiance, who's definitely a PhD candidate. <laughs> if only he couldn't read. <laughs> Who let you have all these ideas? <laughs> it's not right for men to read, it Devin. Really they get isn't. too many ideas. <laughs> Next one wants it's a lot to of vote. hot takes. <laughs> Work outside the home. That's not right. This place is on the farmstead. Exactly. Who will bring in the wheat? I know. Who will repair the rafters, Devin? <laughs> You'll just want to sit around with books all day. <laughs> but anyway, back to the state and yeah. why it's not good. <laughs> So basically, you have a lot of these early modern states kind of forming. You're getting, like, prototype France, prototype England. Mm-hmm. And they are very concerned about rebellion, sedition, disorder. They don't want their ruling elite status to be disruptive. And Oof. there's really no... You know, it's not a coincidence that all of this panic about the witches and their unholy Sabbaths where they have orgies in the woods appeared right around the time when you have all these waves of social rebellions in the 14th century. We're getting these ideas in the late 14th century about, Mm -hmm. and, you know, they just keep spreading and growing and growing because there's this huge period of instability and social rebellion. There's the witch hunt going on at the same time as popular rebellion of peasant, you know, uprisings of religious wars, of civil wars, first, you know, the first national revolutions start happening. So there's this real connection that's being made. And it's, it's actually made, it's spelled out very clearly that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or as, as the Scottish royalists said, rebellion is the mother of witchcraft. Oh, good. Because <laughs> there's this idea of the witch as being, specifically, as being this very 
non-conformist. You know, she's not yeah. necessarily she's not necessarily a rebel. She's not necessarily the person leading the rebellion, but she's on average older, she's poorer, she's no longer fertile, she's more often than not unmarried or widowed. Mm -hmm. uh, she wasn't able to have these traditional standards um, in her community or um, and and in many ways she's, you know, kind of outside of the norm yeah. and kind of represents an inversion of the traditional power, right? Like mm -hmm. traditional power, you're supposed to be a wealthy and a man and educated and a witch is none of those things, but she also has power and it creates this real anxiety around it. Mm -hmm. And so you have these states who then use all of their newfound judicial power to go after these witches. They are using the secular courts to go after witches, and they are also using judicial torture as a means of extracting confessions out of people. Mm, love it. Yep. <laughs> love a good torture. <laughs> yeah, it was not great. And basically, as the power of these states grow and grow, they become more formalized, more public, and they get more and more legal authority. So basically, you want to establish even more power and more authority by making yourself completely sovereign. You want to reduce the power of any kind of royal, uh, you know, any, any other authorities that they might have. Mm -hmm. So you want to reduce the power of your clergy. You want to reduce the power of your nobility. And you also want to reduce the power of just normal, ordinary folks but especially people like witches who are seen as having a special secret power. So all that to say is that's basically how and why these witch hunts happened. It's this coalescence of religious and economic and political changes that all result in creating essentially a scapegoat out of Basically, you know, women who are deemed disposable, women who are deemed as outside of this rigid hierarchy that had to be yeah. maintained now. And, and also just women who, I mean, don't really fit into the new, the new capitalist world with an established state and religions that you know whether catholic or protestant were becoming less and less tolerant of any kind of syncretism or folk practice yeah that makes sense so all of this happens we're relatively familiar with you know the chaos that ensues and the witch trials but how did we come to a place where we're no longer in Europe, at least, because this lasts much longer in North America. A place where we're no longer prosecuting people for witchcraft. Like, when does this come to an end? Well, it lasts surprisingly long. The very last recorded witch hunt and prosecution was in 1782. Wow. That's yeah, so it... It lasts a lot longer than I think most people realize because we want to think of this this time period, especially, you know, the 
the 18th century, it's this, oh, like, it's the Enlightenment. <laughs> and, you know, even before that, it's the Renaissance, and people care about logic and reason <laughs> and science. And it's like, no, they were burning witches. They were burning <laughs> witches at the stake. They were hanging them. They were drowning them. Good times. Um, but, yeah. I mean, essentially, what really stops it is partly... And to be fair to the Enlightenment, to be fair to them, there definitely are some some voices from from them saying, you know, um, hi, we should maybe have more evidence because the evidence you're bringing to trial is like <laughs> someone's like, well, my neighbor's a witch, and you all kind of say, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure she's a witch, and then they kill her. <laughs> and, you know, so so there's there's a lot of legal reform that says, okay, number one, you need to you need to have evidence. Um which, you know, it's uh kind of impossible to have real physical evidence that someone <laughs> made a pact with the devil or otherwise that they're doing magic i mean i guess if you find like a doll with pins stuffed in it in her house but overall yeah. it just becomes very it becomes more and more difficult to try someone when you need to present evidence in a court and the other thing is you actually start seeing a lot of um a lot of a lot of pushback against the use of torture mm. because for the whole thing about it basically you have the whole i mean a lot of witchcraft confessions came at the hand of torturers for the mm -hmm. most part you know that's where most of these confessions came from people would accuse you of being a witch you'd be tortured you say yes i'm a witch i made a deal with the devil and then you'd be executed or sometimes if you repented properly they would let you go for the most part, you were going to get, you know, it was, it was really a 50-50 shot, if we look at it statistically. Yeah. But you actually have these critiques coming out as early as this as 1631, written by Friedrich Spee von Langenfeld, a German Jesuit, who was a professor of moral theology at the University of Paderborn, and he had seen firsthand a lot of witch hunts and witch trials, and he wrote Cautio Criminalis, where he wrote all about this terrible practices and the way that these victims were being treated and basically condemned all the German judges and princes in his town who had allowed this to happen. And from that point, you get sort of this springboard effect where you, you sort of get more and more people who start reading his work and then writing kind of derivatives of it. Yeah. And that's really essentially what ends the witch hunts is, oh. A, we, uh, we stopped torturing people, and B, we demanded evidence in courts <laughs> of law. But also there is at, at the very end of it, there is also uh, Descartes was a really big mm. influence on this because you have the whole idea of Cartesianism, mm. which is like wholesale rejection of dogma and you're supposed to kind of systemically explore your own doubt mm -hmm. and, you know, the whole like, I think, therefore I am mm -hmm. stuff. And 
basically this really changes the mental outlook of educated people throughout Europe where they start saying, well, is there evidence for this witchcraft stuff? Should I actually believe that witches are real? So even though belief in witchcraft really holds on in the lower classes until well into, you know, the 19th, even into the 20th centuries, Mm -hmm. by really by, you know, by the, the 18th century, you're seeing more and more pushback from the elites in society and saying, no, this is silly and that's not actually real. Yeah. But, you know, it's... It, it does just sort of peter off in this weird way where it becomes a very... Like, oh, oh, we murdered a bunch of people for absolutely no reason. And no one really says anything about it. It's just like... Big oof. Well, it's not even big oof. By oof, I mean, for most... Most of the responses tend to be either, you know, they range from, oh, oopsie doopsie, (laughs) to, I mean, you do also get, in many cases, the outlook that, you know, it was actually a good thing, because it's still, you know, even if they weren't really witches, they were annoying, troublesome, (laughs) excess women, and it's good that we got rid of them regardless. You know, we really gotta get rid of these rebellious types. They're really cramping my style as a wealthy aristocrat. Not cute. It is not cute at all. And I think this kind of really highlights how much the early modern world really changed yeah. Changed how we view magic and how yeah. we view, you know, anything outside of the ordinary or the fantastical. And also how we view the difference between class. Because before this time, mm-hmm. right, like, everyone believes in witches. Everyone yeah. believes in magic. Yeah. Everyone believes in these folk practices and rituals and things. But by, like, the 1700s, Suddenly, there's this big divide. The poor are no longer just poor. They are culturally different from the elites. So basically, we see this as a huge social change Mm -hmm. where the poor stop being just poor. They are Mm -hmm. culturally different. Mm -hmm. Before the early modern period, you know, everyone believes in magic. Everyone believes in witches. Everyone is partaking in these you know, festivals and feasts, right? Like the Lord of the Manor opens his house for the feasts, for the feast days of saints or for big holidays. But this is when you're really seeing this huge separation between the rich and the poor. Mm -hmm. You have social changes where they're suddenly prosecuting witches at the same time as they're putting down festivals. They're suppressing alehouses. They're really cracking down on what's acceptable behavior in society and there becomes this huge cultural difference between someone who's wealthy and educated and someone who's poor and who you know and and we still see this into today in the distinct cultural differences that exist between elite Mm -hmm. people 
you know, the wealthy of society versus the general population. And this is when we're really seeing this kind of coming to a real head is around the witch trials in the way that, you know, both religion and economics and the state all sort of coalesce around crushing these remnants of resistance and crushing these remnants of people saying, no, your new ways aren't better and I don't like them and I don't want them. Yeah, that makes sense. Rough. Yeah. (laughs) Who knew that looking at witch trials would sort of so the like the politics behind them would so sort of neatly line up with like modern like extreme right wing kind of things yeah. you know like about like maintaining control and power and like classism and yeah it's a it, it's really you know there's there is this sort of hegemony that capitalism demands of you. That, yeah. you know, there isn't room for deviation from the norm. There isn't room for that kind of behavior. And there's definitely no room for anything that that could challenge in any real way power. Yeah. And I think this is just one example of when they thought these witches had real power they brutally suppressed them and i think we're seeing that still to this day when you know ordinary people try to express any kind of opposition to authority yeah and i think that that's probably going to be one of the major underlying themes that is also going to show up in like new world politics around which beliefs as well because it's going to be it's going to be very different in like the actual like ways that which belief like manifest because it's going to be tied into indigenous and west african which belief as well but yeah. the 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 struggle to maintain power relations is a major driving factor in the like witch trials in the Americas. So you see a lot of people, um, a lot of indigenous and enslaved people who are prosecuted as witches um, yeah. in the new world. And it's with that same idea of like controlling this like class and like racial dynamics, which is powerful. So that got a uh, real dark. As it often does. You know, Devin, this time it was my turn to say, and then the murders began. (laughs) I know, I'm really happy about that. I mean, I'm not really happy about it. I'm just glad that finally it's not me being like, oh, like, you know, Sonya's going to tell you about how this, like, (laughs) you know, nice little festival started, and then we're going to, like, or, like, how schools were created, and then we're going to bop over to North America where we're going to learn about murder and genocide. (laughs) (laughs) don't worry there's plenty of murder to go around in europe am i right (laughs) what 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 what? (laughs) but 
anyway. <laughs> well, I mean, so I think that our our big takeaway one can be that you know spooky season is upon us, mm-hmm. and it while is. it is also like really fun to like dress up in costumes and watch your favorite horror movies. Um, as a connoisseur of horror myself, <laughs> um, you know, so much of what we talk about as like the spook is about, you know, subverting the ideas that we have about like societal roles, about societal conventions, about expectations, um, All of these things that we find, like, comfort and order in. And, like, horror, witchcraft, dynamics of power. All of these things are things that are, like, being subverted at this time. You know, like, we have the very Victorian idea of ghosts and, like, the the veil thinning. And, you know, the All Souls Day. We have... You know, we talk a lot about witches and Halloween and all of these things at this time. So it's a great time to like sort of examine our expectations of power, why we think that that is comfortable, why we think that the systems that we have are good and to maybe, you know, like really question them and question why we think certain people and certain systems should have power in our world and whether or not it might be time to reevaluate them. And I think that's a great takeaway. Yeah, and that, like, you know, maybe you can do it with a little bit of witchcraft. <laughs> awesome. I very much think that, in its own weird way, you know, refusing to be, refusing to conform can be its own, its own little bit of rebellion. Yeah. So, it's a, a time to reflect on your own personal power. I think, and how exactly. that can best be used to how you can enact and manifest it in the world. Nice. Sweet. I like that. So this this one and our next our next witch podcast go out to all our all our witches out there in the world. Use your power wisely. Do good work, and we'll see you next time. Yep. Oh, also, uh, follow us on Instagram. Check out our website. We're also on Twitter. And we have a merch we store now. We have a merch now. store. Buy some merch. We're selling merch. It's so cool. S- I designed it myself. It looks myself. really awesome. There's some very witchy stuff up there. So maybe buy some witch merch if you want to help support the work that we're trying to do. Uh, you can consider supporting us on Patreon. We'll be super, super excited about it. And yeah, like Sonia said, do good work. Stay safe, y'all. Double, double, toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. Cool it with a baboon's blood. Then the charm is firm and good.